there's a difference between a director and a filmmaker. A filmmaker, it's all encompassing with their 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 touches on that film. That's right. a filmmaker to me. A director is the one who just comes and you know, calls action and leaves and doesn't really checks in on the edit every once in a while. You know, you've seen a million of those. So if you're getting hired for you and what you do and what you bring, I've been in a situation more recently where I started getting poked and prodded and I'm like, oh, they didn't really want what I do. I was checking a box for them. Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. I'm Josh Horowitz. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, imagine barely hitting 21 with a game-changing film that transforms culture like menace to society. What do you do next? Well, over the last 30 years, Albert Hughes has never taken the obvious path. A Jack the Ripper tale courtesy of Alan Moore in From Hell, directing Denzel in a post-apocalyptic landscape in Book of Eli, and most recently taking on the world of John Wick with the Peacock event series, The Continental. Always been a fan of this man's work, and I know he loves dishing movies just as much as I do. I'm so thrilled to have Albert Hughes on Happy, Sad, Confused for the first time. Hey, man. Well, well, thank you. I wanted to be on because I saw you, whatever it was, a week and a half, two weeks ago, I forget. And you heard, you saw me in my most loopy, goofy state because I was jet lagged. I felt and, connection. Uh, it I was did a it. Joel Silver. Yeah, there was a connection because I go, oh, wait, he, he's funny. He's funny. He he must have something going on other than this. And then uh, you told I me. I appreciate it. Thanks, like, man. Okay, this is perfect. All right. Well, yeah, that was the amuse bouche. Uh, yeah, you can tell us, uh, you, you know, I don't know about you, but you can tell if uh, you're simpatico with somebody pretty quickly. I also was discovered yeah. in our research, in my research, uh, I, I have the explanation. We're both April Fool's babies. I was born on April Fool's Day, too. Wow. I've never met one, really. We, Maybe well, you, I have, but I don't remember recently. You had at least one, your brother. So now two. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I met him at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> he was my womb he was my womb mate did you did you suffer uh did that define you did you suffer all the stupid jokes that i did as a kid of course, uh, being, of yeah. course. but you know what's what's interesting about our birthday is that nobody forgets it this is true and and, and they also like because you have a sense of humor so i'm sure you can be goofy and you know the the word fool is aptly applied to us i guess I'll take it. I'll take it. There are worse things to be called. That being said, you hear the same. Well, things Fat Albert, I had to grow up with that too, Fat Albert, and I wasn't oh. fat. <laughs> um, that's a that's a rabbit hole. I was fat and I got a lot of a lot of consternation for that. But that's that's for the therapist session. That's not for today. Um, all right. So look, I, I alluded to the long storied history of you and your brother, but I do want to give some folks some context before we dive into all sorts of different aspects of the career, including the Continental. So for for the youngins out there that don't know the storied history, like I said, this goes back 30 years, um, menace to society, seemingly for a lot of folks like me, I'm 47, so this definitely hit me at the right time when you and your brother came around. Um, you guys exploded seemingly out of nowhere. Um, mm -hmm. Were you guys, I mean, I guess give me a little bit like the clip notes of the origin story. Were you destined for this? Like as, as kids, were you obsessed with film, knew this was the one true path? Well, I think it starts, I mean, now I can psychoanalyze a bunch of stuff and go back in history. It's like, you know, April Fools, Fools, twins, uh, growing up in Detroit. When you're twins, people poke and prod and, and want to touch you and uh, they want to look at you. So I think that prepared us for Hollywood in a way, because yeah. we were always looked at. So we were, we were almost ready uh, for it when the time came, but before then it was age 12, you know, um, my mother rented a video camp 
camera for us, a 24-hour video rental. And it was that kind of video camera where you had to attach it to the VCR and slide the VCR out and hold it in a pouch. And we were just goofing around, not knowing. And just uh, we were such fans of behind the scenes. Like back then it was Superman, um, the late 70s Richard Donner's version of all the blue mm -hmm. screen stuff. And we always went, were more fascinated with the making of than we were the actual movies. Right. And then it rolled into um, our babysitter taking us to see um, Raiders Lost Ark with her boyfriend. And I remember we were in the theater like, oh, my God, it's another like period piece. Oh, God. And then the boulder starts running and it just was nonstop. Like, what the hell is this? And that movie probably was the one that first had us think about movies, not think about it professionally. Sure. But just think about the power of how much fun you can have in a movie or how much you can be moved. Um, and then we were still continuing to do the home video stuff. At that point, our mother had bought a camera for her business. We had come from welfare and a poor background. And she was this very intelligent, smart woman that got herself into a position of now she's a millionaire, but won't admit it. Um, so she would buy this stuff for her business, she said, because she would get tax write-offs. And she was like, this is my camera. It's the, the company's camera. You, you guys can use it, though. Years later, we found out it was never the company's camera. She she just wanted us to respect it. So we continued and we started making stuff in middle school, uh, what call it? elementary, middle school, high school. High school, we had a public access station right. and we had shows on that. Um, we would. Do, my brother had a talk show. It was very much like Phil Donahue or Oprah Winfrey. Then it gets into the nuts and bolts of how we got into music videos, which we never were intending to do. We always thought we right. were going to be movie makers. And we didn't realize that it was possible. I think subconsciously because of the brown skin, we didn't think it was possible for us to be in the, the business until we saw Spike Lee and Robert Townsend. They both around the same time came out of the movie. One was uh, She's Gotta Have It. The other was Hollywood Shuffle. Yep. And we go, oh, this is possible. So uh, I'm trying to make a long story short. You, well, you well, I'll, I'll, and, and I'll help guide you along. So like you do, you, 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 Earn some acclaim in the music video side. I'm I'm curious, like how, like, what, did you have heat on you by the time you were trying to get Menace to Society made? Were you going to studios? Were you doing the whole water, you know, yeah. water cooler tour? Yeah. Well, we we had apexed in music videos where everybody in the music business knew our names. Right, right at the time that we would have parlayed that into a big music video career. This was back when music videos were were very low budget, particularly for hip hop. Right. Like $30,000 a piece, $40,000 a piece. But we got into that because Tamara Davis, a woman who was a director at the time who'd done hip hop videos and done movies like CB4, mm -hmm. um, helped us put together reels and we shopped them around to different companies. And Hollywood Records was the first one to give us a, a music video, a guy named Chris LaSalle, who was A&R. And we did our first music video. And then it just, we did like 20 or 25 from 18 and a half, 19 to late 19 we did 20 music videos and we had been developing menace to script menace to society now at the same time we didn't get those music videos without uh having the real was my short films from from los angeles city college film school and they were super eight one was called the drive-by one was called menace to society unrelated to the movie but it was my brother's idea to take that title and put it on the script right then we started passing out the script to various people if you get it made you can be the producer and a couple more line producers for our music video and we got an agent sent it out we got rejected um time and time again um but somebody at new line took interest at it 
And at that time, we had just done only music videos, and we'd done one one episode of America's Most Wanted that we were trying to hide from everybody because it was horrible. <laughs> because it was the first time we dealt with acting. And so uh, Bob Shea gets, Bob Shea, who was running the owner of New Line, gets the script because the executive on the West Coast didn't want to meet with us about the script, but wanted to meet with us about The Last Dragon Part Two. There was an executive on the East Coast that liked the script. It was a threat to this guy. So he had to give it to Bob Shea, right? But before we were even given the opportunity to do the movie, the agent says, when you go in, don't talk about Menace. Hear them out on their pitch for Last Dragon Part 2. And my brother and me, we drove there. We parked on a street because we couldn't afford the ballet. And my brother looks and he says, fuck that. We're going to talk about Menace. We're not doing We're not doing that goddamn Last Dragon Part 2. So we go in and repitch it. Then it gets put on Rika and Reed. Then Bob Shea uh, greenlights it, but says, hey, before I greenlight this, I hear you have an episode of America Most Wanted we want to see. <laughs> and we thought, <laughs> oh, no. we're over. We lost it. Sorry. We don't we watched it. It's... <laughs> it's gone. But to his credit, you got to look at the history of New Line. They, they give a lot of people, they were like what Roger I was Corman just thinking did. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you look at PTA back in the day, the late 90s, early 2000s, New Line was, was the place Hubbard to be brothers. for filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they okay, were, so... they they knew what they, they, they knew their niche. They knew that they, they, they were going to get the up and comers, you know. So when you look at and you think back to those days on the set of, of Menace, and you taught you alluded to this of kind of like before that, just learning how to direct actors or work with actors. I mean, that film was like a jolt of of, of energy, a jolt of lightning. And that often happens um, when folks are just like ready to burst with creativity right out of the gate. It seems like that's where you guys were. Do you see like when you look back at that film, do you see the mistakes or do you see like the just like the energy pouring out of you guys, the ideas just hurtling out of you guys? Well, that's an interesting question because I think we were shocked by the response because we thought it was a piece of shit. It was a response we had hoped from the movie that we had hoped to have made, right? Not having any reference point for what you go through in edits and shoot days. Three days in, we thought our career is over. We're just going to uh, we're gonna sleepwalk the rest of this. Although I, I didn't understand back then. I prepared everything. I prepared better than most directors, okay? The, the town is built for dysfunctional directors, let's be honest, okay? Yeah. And I didn't know I prepared so well. So uh, and that's a product of like, you know, those bad nightmares and not having your homework. Um, and also I had a drawing background my mom was grooming me for. So um, when we saw it, we were like, we didn't understand it. We didn't understand the response. We were quite in shock for years. And five years later, I looked at it and it's too, it's pointing to something you said in your question. It was like, oh, I get it now. There's an energy here. Um, it's not necessarily like I can I can see all the warts and bumps and bruises and all that stuff too, but there's an energy here that you can't replace because it's it's about twenty year olds made by twenty year olds. Literally, right. we were twenty, the cast was twenty, and there's this hip hop, angsty anger and you know irreverence and all kinds of stuff going on that's from the generation we were coming from. And we're coming from hip hop videos, so we were actually quite angry when we made the movie. Like we were mad. We had a chip on our shoulders. We were goofy and 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 funny, like silly funny, you know. Um, while we're doing a violent scene, we we call cut and we just start goofing off with the cast. Right. But there was a lot of angst in us, and there was a lot of angst, I think, in that neighborhood and 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 in the cast. And now I understand. The only thing I understand is the energy of it. I don't understand, or or, or ever fully comprehended what it is that people see so you don't you, you don't have like a, a handle on the legacy of that film because it's not yours anymore it's kind of like it's been taken up by a generation and it's 
Yeah, and, and you got to parse it out in different ways. It's like, you know, there's black exploitation films I love, you know, sure. or there's exploitation, you know, white exploitation films I love too. Let's just, you know, whatever it may be. And they're flawed, but they're embraced um, as, as something, you know, like I love the Mac, you know, I love Superfly. Superfly is a very flawed movie. You know, the sound mix is very flawed, um, not the soundtrack. Soundtrack right. is genius. Um, but the looping of the background, walla walla, it's like a three second loop in some of those scenes, right? And the technique is not all that great. Right. The Mac is a better made film, but I love them both equally in a way, you know. Got it. How did you? How did you handle with flaws success? and all? Yeah, 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 I got you. Uh, how did you handle success? You guys went to Cannes with with Menace, didn't you? I can only imagine what it must have been like for 20, 21 year old guys. <laughs> Again, just like who has their shit together at that age? Nobody that I know. Nobody. I certainly didn't. So did you handle it well? Did it get to your head? I mean, were you, give me a sense of what you were like back then. I think we handled it well, considering we were still quite angry and, and kind of volatile and not volatile in bad ways like physical but our mm -hmm. mouths were unfiltered i think the media loved that that we they took they tried to put us in media training it didn't work it was before twitter so it right. was fun for them um i think the most mind-blowing thing was in being in Cannes and walking down the promenade and being jet lagged and someone gave us the transcript of siskel and ebert reviewing the film and we're reading it blown away because we grew up in these guys and they're they're saying nice things about us and then there's a tap on our shoulder and it's ebert and he wants a picture with us and that's when it kind of hit us like, oh, things are about to change. Yeah, you just went through then, the looking like, glass. You're in, you're in the dream now. Yeah, you're just, not, yeah, yeah. And what, and what about? The and I think it's I, more. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna say, I, I heard you in another interview talk about this, like how a lot of folks wanted to group you in with, you know, other black filmmakers of that generation, and you guys really resisted that. You didn't want to be defined by your race and grouped with other folks, and and part of that probably also had to do with your age at the time and wanting to define yourselves as something all your own. But I'm, I, I would imagine that's a complicated thing because also it must've been, you just talked about like, you know, getting the props from Ebert. It must've been a gas to like get props and be, be associated with these amazing filmmakers that you grew up with, that you revered. So like, is there a push and pull of like, we want to do our own thing, fuck that. And also like, oh wait, mm -hmm. this is amazing. Like Scorsese wants to have a conversation with me, et cetera. Like, yeah, it was all that, you know, it, it was, I think we were raised in a way that prepared us for a lot of it. And some, some you can't prepare for, you know, yeah. um, the comparisons we knew right away, we weren't, we were never going to be photographed with the, the so-called black filmmakers. They would always label it black filmmakers. And we were like, well, how can we don't talk about Spielberg and, Jewish filmmaker with another Jewish filmmaker, an Italian filmmaker, Scorsese. Sometimes you'll 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 see the the odd story about him and Coppola. Yeah. To be fair, the Italian American ones, right? Um, but we knew that we had to separate ourselves, right? And um, um, I think it was a very conscious thing, and it came from hip hop too. It came from like beefs and battle, but not real, not a real beef or battle. It was just like making your mark, and also being biracial it's like you guys are also forgetting you know the media that we're half armenian we're not just half black right. we're half armenian right. um, um which some could translate as being half white whatever you want to translate it as being but how half our culture was being rejected um and it was a culture that really raised us you know even though the streets or the uh, nature versus nurture a lot of that was about black culture raising us too you know sure um so it's very confusing but uh, being a biracial kid, you know how to parse that out pretty well because you're always an outsider. You're never fully embraced by either side, and you're uh, uh, you you have this weird sense of studying human behavior, 
and what you want and what you don't want out of life. And you also have a chip on your shoulder. Like being black, you already partly in this business have a chip on your shoulder. Right. But being having a biracial chip on your shoulder, that's a different chip altogether. So So you, you do Dead Presidents with your brother, you do From Hell in 2001 with your brother. I'm a big fan of that one. People should check it out. Um, as I mentioned before, it's uh, based on the infamous great Alan Moore's work, uh, Donnie Depp's in that one. Uh, I, I, I was interesting when I was reading about it, I was reading some other casting what ifs. Is it true that you guys, did you guys go after Daniel Day-Lewis, Sean Connery? Did you ever come close on either of those guys? Yep. I think definitely Daniel was in, of course, he's on everybody's list. list right. So maybe past the mid nineties, right. <laughs> that, you know, that, that, that pipe dream goes away quite quickly. Sean Connery was literally signed and going to be in it. And there were some behind the scenes things that went on that I don't want to throw uh, anybody under. And I don't want to, I don't want to speak ill of a, a, a person who's passed, but it wasn't the right fit for us. Um, <laughs> so we moved on. Okay. Didn't vibe. So okay. Fair, to, fair, fair enough. Okay. Did, what was the, I mean, what, <laughs> what was the attraction uh, of that at the time? And was that, was that by that time had Alan Moore totally, I mean, he's infamously disassociated himself with every adaptation of his work. He like, is so anti-Hollywood. It's not even yeah. funny. Yeah. But I also think that's part of his like mystique he's building because right. the truth is, you know, dude, building in your contract, if you don't <laughs> want to stuff that, if you're that great of a power and the, what do you call it? graphic novel game you know stop stop doing that but it's it's what right. he, he uses that to kind of like you know to build his little legacy and mythology behind him i think it's bullshit and i think it's unfair to a lot of filmmakers that that do make them yeah. and i think it's not cool that he does that uh put in your contract you don't want to make it in a movie period right end of story right. right he is a fantastic writer okay that that is not to be denied and that was uh we did that presence that was owned by disney that project I think after they saw Dead Presidents, they're like, mm -mm, "We don't want these guys making another a gross fest." <laughs> I mean, just just so, just you throw yeah. you throw that away, just like di that Disney made Dead Presidents. That is a sign of the times of where we are, are then versus now. <laughs> well, yeah, and they they wanted us badly. There was a history behind how we got there, and it's like Michael Eisner after he saw our first music video wanted us at Disney um, under enough another shingle so we can do our thing. They fumbled the ball. The people beneath them. A Time magazine article came out about us when Menace dropped and he came into a boardroom and said, I thought I told you guys to sign them two years ago or a year and a half ago. Now look what happens. Get them at all costs. So they got us at all costs. Um, <laughs> we make that movie. We're insecure while we're making it because it's it's the Disney parent company and we're making it for um, Joe Roth and Marja Birnbaum who had, it wasn't Spyglass, it was Caravan Pictures. Mm -hmm. And the only way they can get us to do it is by saying we can protect your rated R, right. yada, yada, yada. So then after that, that's over. My brother says, hey, there's this really good project called From Hell. He tells me about it's about Jack the River. I'm like, cool. And we're consciously thinking now, again, it's this race thing. Black filmmaker, what is a black filmmaker going to do? Well, let's go 180 on them. Let's just do a normal movie. And it was a, a very calculated and, and we did it for a reason. We, we liked it a lot. There was no doubt. But then it bounced from there to New Line to Fox. And in, in, in a course of three and a half years. And I thought it was going to be made like our only experience of making the movies that they happen right away. You don't wait right. forever. Our right. first movie happened overnight. Our second one, we got rushed into. This third one's surely going to happen within six months. So 
Meanwhile, I'm doing all the Jack the Ripper research, reading all the books, watching all the movies, not knowing that we're going to get bounced around in development hell. And by the time we get ready to make it, I know some, uh, I know about the same as the Ripperologists, as they call them. Right. Like all the theorists that online yep. back then, they had their own chat board. I was pretty well versed, like even to the point where when I was in the East End of London, I would see a tour group going around with a, a guide showing all the murder locations and talking about the details. And I'm like, well, he's wrong about that. There's new information. But I knew I knew all the up-to-date information. So by the time we got to make it, I was able to replicate all the murder locations more accurately than it had been done in the past. What what about in terms of- And that was of, a big geek thing, me. And what about in terms of, look, again, from the, from the first film, we can see that you guys have- technique pouring out of you like you you know your way with a camera you know what to do in terms of working with actors as you start to work with these quote-unquote movie stars was there a learning curve even by the time like from hell you'd made a few movies but now you're working with you know johnny depp who's freaking johnny depp like did you kind of know how to treat and, and adapt to different kinds of talent like that yeah i mean it's it's a different poison for each person you know excuse the expression you know um if they're up and comers you, you usually have more dramas than things with up-and-comers who are trying to emulate like the method or whatever the fuck it is right, they're influenced right. by they're the ones that are usually bringing more drama then you have the star power that sometimes can bring their own uh, set of issues we we learned very early on to uh, separate the duties alan would talk to the actors i would deal with the crew and prep you know mm -hmm. and the camera um and we learned that through an experience on menace where there was a blowout between me and an actress um um and I wasn't great at communication and I was very introverted and shy. I still am, but I know how to play the part of an extrovert now a lot better. Alan was more the extrovert. So when you're dealing with someone like Johnny or let's say Denzel or Gary Oldman, they all have their different things. But the one thing about Johnny is he spoiled us because he was such a sweetheart. He was just the, the most giving guy and so supportive. And he had a back issue. And I remember we had to do this thing where he fell back in the chair we're in take two and my brother and I are like, Johnny, let's just call it a day. We got what we need. It's, it, but, it, but are you guys happy? Are you happy? If you're not happy, let's do it again. I'm like, okay, Johnny, <laughs> so he would do it again. And, and he would have his way where some people can get like a cantankerous and obstinate and, you know, badly behave when they're trying right. to tell you something. We were doing, because we hadn't shot in so many years. And sometimes we don't know the ways of a set because we're, we, be honest we weren't on many sets professionally right even up that at that point so we're doing this wide shot over and over and over again and he's squatted down next to a body taking notes and he goes during the middle one take he looks at the camera and goes you think you guys got it <laughs> and that was his way of telling us like you know come on you guys let's move yeah, on yeah let's, let's yeah we got but it. he did I, it in a very very <laughs> fun way you know very funny way what about so by the time of book of eli which i think that's the last film that you guys collaborated on you and your brother correct mm -hmm. um that's 2010 yep. another big gap but, um, you know, a, re a really solid flick. I mean, Denzel in action mode, he hadn't done even that much action by them, but that was just like a pretty uh, bravura performance from him. This is a guy that like, you know, he doesn't suffer fools. You need to bring it with Denzel. You can't, you can't, you know, just wing it. Um, you know, I, I've heard stories about like you talking about how sometimes you, you and your brother weren't able to kind of hide friction on set. If you disagreed, the actors would see it. And maybe that's not the best look sometimes. How did you handle that by the time of Book of Eli? How did Denzel handle it when he saw you guys maybe not being in sync? He handled it very well. And he, he said something sweet at, at a rap party one day. He goes, the reason why I did the movie is to see you guys work together again. And I thought that was really sweet. And he saw he saw some pretty ugly stuff. 
you know, because at that point, my brother and I were starting to fracture in real time in front of people, you know, and it wasn't a, a it wasn't a pretty uh, scenario, uh, let's say. And he handled it like a professional, you know, um, he would either just walk away or smile, you know, from from afar and let it play out. Because a lot of times when my brother and I would fight, it, it wasn't as serious as it looked. Mm -hmm. On that one, I think uh, they they appeared the, the way they did in the past, but they were quite uh, there was quite a fissure. And um, I think that's when we we knew that was our last movie together. Uh, gotcha. we, I mean, in our hearts, we we knew that because um, we just weren't seeing eye to eye with how to make a movie, showing up on time. I've always, I've always been a, a guy like I, I just respect it. I'm not trying to throw my brother under, but like I just respect the crew's time. I don't like going into overtime. Um, he has a different way of working. It, it was mostly, I think, um, working methods. Mm. And then there's twin stuff thrown in there and, you know, sure. a bunch of other stuff. But out of that came a lot of fun. I mean, Gary Oldman was a very, very fun to watch work because uh, he, he and Denzel have two styles. They they both, people presume, come out of method and they both kind of do. Yeah. Gary, much more in the past, was a real hardcore method actor. But when he'd get upset, he'd yell at the clouds. He wouldn't yell at anybody. He was the sweetest man. If you did a read-through, you know those read-throughs, everybody goes half half speed. Right. Gary Oldman goes one, knows one speed, 110. He does 110 and <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> the, low, the low point in my career, my early career, I used to do sketches for MTV in addition to my like straight interviews. And it was one of those things where um, we had um, – Got in Team Oldman to agree to him doing a comedy sketch. Unfortunately, no one told Gary. So he walks in the room <laughs> and I have like literally a pinata up, all this shit up. And he walks in. He couldn't have been sweeter, but was basically just like in that whisper voice, like, what are we doing? And like it was just it crushed me because there's no one I revere more than Gary Oldman. And in the years since, well, that's a sketch, and you should have recorded that. If you recorded I will never, that, you got yourself. A Albert, sketch. I will never look at that tape. I will never look at that tape. Since then, he's done the podcast. We're good, but that was a that was a dark moment. Um, so by by then, you you look. I'm talking to you from Prague. This is home for you. Um, I I didn't realize until you know talking to you the other week that you've made your home there for about what at least twenty over twenty five yep. years, right? So was part of that loosely. Was, okay, so was part of that to kind of look. I mean. Did you want to disassociate, get out of the game, so to speak? I mean, to stay in the game, but not be in the game? Was that part of it? Well, I mean, you know, not to be presumptuous or to compare myself to someone, but I, I can understand Kubrick moving to, to London and never wanting to fly. Oh, never wanting to fly, I, I got some arguments with that, but I understand. Um, it's just a separation from American culture that I needed. And it has more yeah. to do not with his reasoning. My reasons is, uh, you know... There's some weird stuff going on in that country, especially when you're brown or a woman or any other person of color. And I recognize it at three, or not three, at five. I smelled something wasn't quite kosher. And I was like, mm, and my whole life, I'm like, this ain't, there's something not right. Um, and I, I vowed never to come back to Prague after I shot from hell because I had some problems with the working environment here, more so than the culture. Okay. I got some issues with the culture, post-communist um, kind of attitudes. Um, but it was a freeing experience, and um, I don't want to be corrupted by um, being around American culture where I'm constantly reminded that I'm brown. I may be reminded that I'm brown in Europe, but they don't have this deep-seated weird history with with it. You know, they could be racist, they could be jingoistic, they could be nationalistic, all that other stuff. But once they sit down and get to know you, they're they're cool. 
Right. I've never been beat up by their cops. I've never been pulled over by their cops. I've never been pickpocketed. You know, you can get pickpocketed easy anywhere, by the way. But I've never been roughed up and mishandled uh, by Europeans. Not to say that it can't happen, but it doesn't happen at the frequency it happens in America. And I just wanted to go through life that if I'm going to be looked at for being different, I want a different energy. Right. You know, well, I, good, I don't good news, Albert. We, we, we fixed everything over here. Everything's good now. You can come back. Oh, you have no speaker. There's no speaker of the house. And apparently, <laughs> besides yeah. that, and the fact that Trump's going to win again, we're fine. It's going to be fine. Yeah. We're fine. Oh, God. <laughs> That's another rabbit hole. It's not That's good. Let's not talk about that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we should give some love to the Continental. Uh, you did a great job with this one, man. This is a three part, uh, I don't know what the event series what we're calling this but this is mm -hmm. for those that don't know uh a bit of a prequel um for the from the john wick world uh some backstories that we're illuminating on some key characters from what i gather in talking to you and what i've heard you speak about i, I mean i get why this was appealing but tell me why this is appealing this feels like just like a fun like you can really like flex some muscles let loose in a really cool environment and just kind of show off in a good way. Uh, talk to me about like, what, what, what boxes does this check for you? It, it was that it was like coming out of COVID and everybody kind of stressed out and I go, well, I don't want to do any serious topic. I don't want to deal with slavery. I don't want to deal with the uh, generational trauma, inner city gun violence, you know, been there, done that. Let me go have some fun. And I think the audience wants to have fun. I didn't realize I would have that much fun though. Um, I, I loved all the John Wick movies. And I thought this was an interesting, interesting story, but I thought it was for me at my point in my life, a checkout, like where you're just like, I'm just checking out and let's see what happens. And what it do did for me was it um, like it, when it comes to like filmmaking, it was kind of this exuberance that came out of me of, of, you know, sometimes you can watch a film for fun and you can see the filmmakers having fun. And then you can see that same filmmaker go do a very serious topic and you can tell it's not a fun topic, but they have their 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 thing going too in that film, but there's no sense of joy right. in, in it. Um, they're they're just telling the story the best they can with the tools that they have if they're very skillful. You know, as a filmmaker like Alfonso Caron, let's take for instance, like the difference between him and Harry Potter and Roma. Those are same sure. guy, two different feelings, I'm sure. You know, um, and I wanted the 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 fun, the funny bone, <laughs> whatever you call it. Um, and I, I didn't expect the kind of the exuberance is a word I never use. It's actually a word that's quite silly, but the exuberance of, from the crew, the cast, and it just was infectious. And for people to understand, like sometimes I think they take some film goers take even wit too seriously or they take the, the show too seriously. It's like, no, it's meant to be pulpy and campy yeah. in a very elevated way. You're meant to have fun. The, the, the premise is quite silly and the, the most glorious way in a way you know it's like if you buy into this world of assassins um and this kind of parallel universe then you're in for a, a, a fun ride it's also ironic to me that like like you're playing to a degree in someone else's sandbox yet this gives you so much freedom in a way <laughs> you're, you're locked in, in in a certain way but you're also able to kind yeah. of like make your 70s new york stylized action film that not I mean, many people get to make nowadays that's interesting because you would think, you know, like I, I would never want to play in another man or woman's sandbox. That's just a hard and fast rule my brother and I have always had. But then I started thinking about, I think I may have brought this up to you too, like Noah Hawley and Far, Fargo. Right. Um, 
uh, Mandalorian with uh, John Favreau and Tony Gilroy more recently with Andor. Mm-hmm. I go, oh, it, it it can be done. I didn't expect that. I would. I feel like the the, the chains were off in a way. Like there was no uh, corporate committee telling me you can or can't do this or put this in because that's coming out in four or that was in three. Yeah, it was just like free reign. And what's wonderful and weird about the John Wick uh, world is that it just eats up oddities. It wants all that odd, wild stuff. Yeah, it yeah. It embraces the eccentricity. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wants scene chewing, all that kind of good stuff. You can't get away with this stuff in any other movie. That's you can tell. Like if you're going to psychoanalyze uh, Ch- Chad Stahelski, why he hasn't left the series, because it's probably con- constraining to him to do something else. Totally. What What are your own pet peeves or loves right now in action? I mean, I, I I was I was raised on action, and I feel like I'm like desensitized, and like so little works for me nowadays. Like, I, I, if I had a nickel for every time I watch action, I'm like, where the fuck am I? Just show me where I am in the scene. Like, I, geography. I, I it, geography. geography kills me nowadays, and so few filmmakers know how to do it. What, what are your own? What are your loves, your hates in action now? Well, it's the it's the obvious one, that obviously uh, Chad and I shared because around the time of, of Book of Eli, I didn't know that he and David wanted to be coordinators on that. And he reminded me, like, no, we we interviewed for them. I'm like, oh my god, um, <laughs> I wish I had known. I look like an idiot now. Um, no, it was my big thing was the early odds. I won't name the filmmaker. You you know, it was a series of films with all this handheld bullshit, um, rapidly edited, where it was just close ups and sound effects. And I think Chad's response to that and my response was quite the same. Book of Eli, you see it. You know, there's a wide shot moving slowly. He he destroys all the bad guys. So geography is one thing and geography could be taken care of if you if you step settle on the wider shots with your actor actually in it right if it's a more sprawling like sometimes i think mission impossible does a, a really good job and some of those bond films do a really good job on geography because they have the best doing it you know the best action directors the best second units you know and they actually know know how to service an action audience then you have all those in-between films who who don't and it's either the director or the, the second unit or the, the action director. It's a combination of like one one element is pulled out. It can all be a house of cards that falls. But if you have a filmmaker who's very conscious of things that you're talking about, like, I don't want the audience feeling this way. I saw, a, I'm not going to name the filmmaker again, but it was one of those series where in the early aughts um, where it was a car chase and it's hand, handheld, shaky, shaky, shaky. And then the car chase ended by a car flipping and the car wobbled to a stop. It was stopped. And then the camera two beats later went like this. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. Like, why? Like, why? Why? So you, that's my big pet peeve. I hear you. I'm with you. Okay. So you you did look from hell is a graphic novel comic adaptation. You haven't done, unlike many filmmakers, a comic book uh film, necessarily a superhero film. Um I read an old interview w- with you where you mentioned that like Batman was actually offered to you guys at least once way back, back in the, the day. It was Superman's and Batman's. I, I don't know why out of the first movie they were, the, the town was very nice to us and we're thinking we could handle that, but I, I, I'm so happy we would have messed it up. Did you have, did you but have we, a take I on either one? Did you... Yeah. No, not at all. We knew that was a bad uh, situation for us that don't even step into it. We're, we're going to ruin that movie. We didn't have the skill set. We didn't have the wherewithal. Um, we, we, you know, that old Clint Eastwood line, a man's got to know his limitations. We knew our limitations. Now, cut to nowadays, like I've been, I've been in talks with the obvious studio about superhero movies a couple of times, but I always felt uncomfortable because I knew it was a system. 
and they're very nice. And I went through a long process. In fact, I broke down, I mean, I still have this from a year and a half ago where I broke down all their movies, like uh, put them in a spreadsheet and broke down the, the box office, the Rotten Tomato scores, where the VFX, I ranked the VFX. I had to do a deep dive on them. And I got very halfway, not very close, halfway through the process. And I go, nah, I, I, I would uh, implode from uh, kind of the controlled nature of that world and not being able to do what I do. And I don't understand, I wouldn't understand why a real filmmaker would want to be in that system. I would understand why up and comers would, which they do a good job of like finding people at the right time. Right. Um, but I think I would implode. Um, and there wasn't one character I was interested in. All the others I really weren't. And um, there were two other opportunities that I just know uh, it's a bad, a bad situation. You never want to be somewhere you're not truly wanted. You know, you're not does truly it, does, wanted for what you do. Does it rhyme with with Glade? Does it? Uh... That smells. That smells uh, like it's on the right trail. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. Fan of that character. We love that character. But you're saying like <laughs> with within the parameters, you couldn't do what you do best. You felt. I, I think there's a thing that is rarely talked about in Hollywood when it comes to the di difference to me. There's a difference between a director and a filmmaker. A filmmaker, it's all encompassing with their their their, their touches on that film. That's a right. filmmaker to me. And there are filmmakers like well, a producer can be a filmmaker too. You know, a cameraman is a filmmaker. You know, but a, a rock star cameraman, right? A director is the one who just comes and you know, calls action and leaves and doesn't really checks in on the edit every once in a while. You know, you've seen a million of those. So if you're getting hired for you and what you do and what you bring, I've been in a situation more recently where I started getting poked and prodded and I'm like, oh, they didn't really want what I do. I was checking a box for them right. and this is not going to work out. And it, it didn't work out. I had to quit that job. Like I, I smelled it pretty early and I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not here for this. Like, I love I, that, I you, you, that you literally have a chart. That, like, so that was like when you were like really seriously considering getting involved and you're like, let me really mm -hmm. like think about this meticulously, how it succeeded or hasn't for other folks and if it would work for me. And like, that's a degree of like research you did, not even in just into the project. But into... <laughs> well, I, I, th this came out of like, what this did for me is like, know who your daddy is. Your daddy has never failed. That right. th the producer who does this, is the most successful producer in Hollywood history with the most successful studio in Hollywood history. Right. So if I'm going to walk into that, you have, I have to drop my ego and go, are you ready for this? Like right. that's daddy and daddy's <laughs> going to have some wants. And so that was a process I had to go through, you know? What about way back when I was always the, the, one of those projects that no one's been able to crack yet is Akira. Did you, did you have a lot of yeah. love for Akira? Was that, was that a sadness that that didn't come I together? I was deep. The, the dirty little secret on that is they tried it many times. They were $9 million in by the time I got on. I had another three on the project. So they're in 12 right now, right? I had a, a production, uh, uh, what do you call it? A production designer, a whole office, um, um, pre-biz. And it all came down to, you know, it's this BS stuff in town, like, oh, the right casting. It's like, well, Akira is the name. It's the IP. But they just weren't, they were scared to make it. And you could smell it after a while. You know, it's like, well, why did you get me involved? This was at the Book of Eli when Warner Brothers opened up the vault and they said, what do you want? I said, I want to right. cure it. And so I was on that for a little under a year and I started smelling the, 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 the roses of the coffee. I'm like this. They're not really ready to make this. Right. They're using the excuse of casting, but that's BS, you know. And then, you know, the whitewashing thing comes into play. Like, are we going to hire 
Asian actors or white actors and like, you know what, I'm, I'm not trying to get involved in all that. Like, I, I'm fine with doing the original the way the original needs to be done. And yeah. I think the IP is bigger than than any one actor. But at that time, that was 2010, 11. Right. When we got, and I did some really cool previews though. I had some fun doing that. And, and redesigning the bike. Redesigning the bike. And the funniest story comes out of that. I had to go to BMW in Munich and sit down with an American guy who's the head kind of concept designer. And me and him get into a rumble. Like we're literally arguing with each other because he's trying to introduce this new technology that he's trying to put into the vehicles. And I'm like, no, this is what I want right here. I just want your emblem. Like, can you just <laughs> sign off on this? Because I want. So he's put his dick on the table, and my dick's on the table. I'm, 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 I'm like, fuck this. I get up and I walk out. The production designer's like, Albert, and they go back in there, and just calm down. I go, but this guy's trying to put some bullshit on us because he wants to sell some other motorcycles that have nothing to do with the movie. Right. And then he starts insulting the concept art, and I'm like, okay, I've had it. I'm out of here. Well, 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 this is the last time I have a German talk down to me. You're not even German. <laughs> I literally every actor in Hollywood was associated with that project. Did you have like who was your dream cast? Did you have a a dream cast in, in mind? Gary Oldman. I had uh, Gary Oldman. I had I had sketched like storyboard sketches. I'll send it to you, man. It it, it was amazing. Okay, yeah. he was the only guy. Okay, and then there was like talks about him and her, but nothing. Okay, well, Gary Oldman. You... I wanted as like the heavy, the guy who oh, controlled the corporation. He's the best. Um. You, look, I got a sense of this when we were just chit-chatting before our event the other day of, of Joel Silver's stories. You must have so many. You could probably write a really interesting memoir of the different meetings and personalities you've met along the way. Give me give me one. Give me a random, what's the what's the strangest pitch meeting you've had, the strangest person you found yourself in a room with? There must be, what jumps out at you? What's your go-to cocktail story of like, wait, I'm suddenly in a room with Kanye West or Tom Cruise or Vin Diesel and I have to pitch this. Anything come to mind? Man, there's a there's a thousand of them, okay. And Joel Silver could be a book about him, but I, I would say the weirdest was Robert Blake, and oh it wasn't God. weird. It was I think it was pre murder. Anytime you anytime you have to say qualify that in a story, just so this was pre murder, just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd seen Lost Highway, which is where well, I found my uh, cinematographer Peter Deming. Oh, man. And I, I was like, oh, my God. So he comes to our office and he sits down and it's just this weird energy coming off him. Then he starts talking about like Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. And he starts telling this wild story about cocaine. And I, I just knew it wasn't real. The story wasn't real or maybe it was. But why would he be telling us about being in an office with a bunch of different filmmakers and cocaine coming out and him not partaking? And I don't I didn't know heads from tails, but the guy was definitely on a different planet. Right. And I've met people on a different planet like i had to meet an actor once the guy used to be he's uh, he's he's a little troubled i guess forgot his name young actor he wanted to meet and he wanted to meet me at a motel off of oh. hollywood because it was right next to where manny pacquiao training trained and he was a big manny pacquiao fan but he wasn't even there when i got there it was seedy like drug prostitution all kinds of shit then he had rented three rooms and then he sat down and he's like i haven't read the script Michael something. He was in the Boardwalk Empire. Oh, Michael Pitt. Um, yeah, Michael he, Pitt. He's, he's, yeah, he had some issues. Yeah. Yep. He had some issues. So he's sitting down and talking to me. And he, there's no eye contact. There's all these weird people coming in. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? I haven't read the script, but uh, here it's this. And uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, I got out of there. Come on. I'm like, yo, I don't know what's going on with my man, but I don't meet at motels with shifty people around. And there's no reason to have a meeting if a person hasn't read the script, but that was just fucking wild. 
Amazing. There's wilder, it's, wilder stories. Though. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, we're building to it. This is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, Albert. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> is there is there one? I have project? to send you the Gary Oldman, the Gary Oldman, Wait. the Gary Oldman um, uh, storyboards. I'm ready, I, I'm ready to, to receive. Yeah. Ring, ring, ring. Um, I'll let you go on this. How does it feel? Just like look, coming full circle. We've been talking about this 30 year journey. Like back then, Menace was so influenced by all these other filmmakers. Everyone you'd gr- grown up with. It must be a trip to hear Menace and you guys referenced by the generation that's come. Do you let that sink in a little bit mm-hmm. that like you guys now have influenced another generation of filmmaker? No, it hasn't sunk in. And I think it's partly like, you know, the the self-imposed modesty, you know, there could be false modesty and real modesty. And then the nature of like being uh, so many miles away from it, you know, you'll bump into people in foreign countries, but not like if you're in LA or New York. And um, you can see things online, um, but no, I just, I kind of, I, it's, it's like seeing somebody else. It's right. really weird out of body experience. Um, and I, I would never want it to go to my head. Other things have gone to my head, not that. Um, and I, I just respect, I respect, I guess, what it did for us and what people did for us back then. Right. Like the, the, the convergence of luck and opportunity, whatever that expression is. I know, I don't forgot what it is. Um, it was luck and opportunity and yeah, a little skill, a little skill in there. Well, not, look, not th- a lot. Th- that argument could bit. be made if it ended there, but there's a 30 year track yeah. record and you guys are both going strong in respective realms. And that's really impressive. Um, I, I, I'm so thrilled that I finally got to know you after being such a fan for all these years, man. Uh, congratulations. Everybody should check out uh, The Continental, this three-part series. It's on Peacock. Check it out. Albert uh, directed himself uh, it, it, the first part, the third part. The third part's going to blow your mind. It's action that's like really oh, thank you. Um, is just next level stuff. Uh, I hope you get to do more of it or you know, whatever you do, I'll follow you, man. Congratulations. And uh, this is the beginning of our beautiful nerdy film. I know friendship. I would say, I was going to say likewise, because I, I want to, I want to question you now. I want to do a podcast where I question you. You know where to find me now. <laughs> on film <laughs> history. <laughs> on film history. We'll talk but, uh, um, 80s Rambo movies anytime. Yeah. Oh, we can go. And you get my email after this because I got to send you that stuff. Definitely. All right, man. I'll hit you up. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. (laughs) 